The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. This is really such a great topic to discuss with your Dharma friends. It's so rich. I mean, really, even the each of the precepts, we could just spend months, and it all it would all be very fruitful. So tonight we'll look specifically at the fifth precept, which has to do with the mind's relationship with intoxicants and expanding that beyond the normal things of drugs and alcohol to anything that our mind finds intoxicating, is attracted to as an intoxicant. And I think this dynamic that I tried to shape in the guided sit tonight is the right, a useful way at least to kind of continue your reflection on this over the months ahead. You know, the, like what is the mind's relationship to the happiness of contentment? And what is the mind's relationship to the excitement of self-drama, this excitement of getting or getting rid of or the excitement of becoming because more than you know, the high we get from drugs and alcohol is the high that we get from our own thinking, you know, the constructions of our own mind. I mean, definitely more juicy than a good drink or something to the things that we can imagine. And this really comes to the heart of this, all the reflections and study we've been doing about integrity, about ethical conduct. You know, it's not easy to really connect and live out of this value of non-harming, really caring deeply, not just on the surface, but deep, deeply into the sort of underlying causes for suffering and harm in our world, it's really hard to live out that value of non-harming while we're intoxicated by things, whatever it might be that we're intoxicated by. You know, getting something, becoming somebody. It's just hard to show up because the mind is fixated lost in, intoxicated by some drama, whatever it is. So we'll have small groups later in about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. And, you know, so as we're, as I'm talking, maybe other people will say a few things, but as I'm talking for this next 30 minutes, you might just kind of get a sense of your own patterns of consumption. And in particular, what drives our patterns of consumption? So if for you, like uh, media, consuming media, TV or movies or news or you know whatever it might be, romance novels or mystery novels or or caffeine, sugar, drugs, alcohol, needing somebody to talk to, always needing somebody around you. So whatever your intoxicant of choice is, or intoxicants of choice are, um, like, get in, you know, it might be nice in the small group, just as a way of normalizing that 
we all have our intoxicants, and to share some of those. And if you can, um, as I'm talking, getting a sense of what's the hook with that intoxicant? Like what keeps bringing you back to watching more TV or eating more food or seeking out chocolate or, you know, seeking out sexual relationships or maybe not even a relationship, but just sexual activity with, you know, whether it's with pornography or just you have an active, useful, you know, vivid imagination. But, you know, there are all kinds of ways that our mind thinks. It's basically thinking about sense experience, pursuing sense experience, and it's all, it has a flavor that this is going to deliver something. So in the small groups, Tom, pack that a little bit. So like, for example, some of the things you might notice, I wrote down some of the things that came to mind for me. So some of these might be familiar for you as well. But, uh, well, first, you know, fear. And there's a sense of, like, I'm pursuing this because there's some fear that if I don't take it when I can get it, then I'll never have it. It will never come my way. The chocolate will never come my way unless I go out and get it. Or the sex won't come my way. Or the interesting absorption in a TV. It's like we have to, we're afraid of not having enough. We're afraid of scarcity or being left high and dry or left without. So the mind then becomes dependent on pursuing, getting. And then there's the, you know, the basic hook of thinking that that pleasantness we do get because these sense experiences, the intoxicants in our life, they do deliver something. And we can mistakenly think that that's something that they deliver, the actual pleasant experience that we get when you have a nice cup of tea with caffeine or you have a nice chocolate bar or you have a whatever it is, a nice beer that you feel that wave of relaxation or whatever you feel in the initial sort of high that comes from the intoxicant. But the mind can make it more than what it is. Like somehow adding a self-story that this is really going to take care of me. So we create this dynamic that what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing is intolerable, but when I have a drink or when I get home and watch this program and just then I can put down the sort of meanness of my day or the yuckiness of my day. This TV program is going to balance out the difficulty or whatever it is, the meaninglessness of my life or the meanness of the world or whatever it is. But there's some sort of promise that that thing, that intoxicant, is going to deliver So look at that. That's one pattern you might deconstruct with your small group. Is like, what story is your mind telling you uh, about what that is going to deliver, whatever it is for you? And it's just so interesting because when we say it out loud, it's a little silly because it doesn't. It's not so believable when we say it out loud, especially with some Dharma friends. 
But in that moment, in our mind, it seems like it's true. True enough to keep us on board with the pursuit. So there's fear, you know, we, these consumption patterns, addictive consumption patterns, this desire for an intoxicant arises out of fear, like fear of what will be without it. There's this uh, thinking that the actual pleasantness that we do get is more than what it is. It is something, but we imagine it's more than what it is. There's, uh, um, you know, sometimes the, the motivation, the hook, is really uh, more direct wanting to numb out, wanting to disconnect, or even wanting to fill the space. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. I've got to do something to jazz this up, spice this up. Right, this life, and you know, we do all kinds of things. I think celebrity worship is a little bit like this, right? You know, our life doesn't seem, in some sense, doesn't seem important. So we, you know, we're all gaga about some performer, musician, actor, artist, or even politician, and follow them and sort of live, even maybe those of you with kids, you know, it's like following your children's successes in that way and keeping your scrapbook or whatever, you know, parents do to um, somehow intoxicate their mind, to fill that space. Of, instead of looking at that space of emptiness, that hollowness, that idea that my life isn't enough or isn't important or isn't meaningful, we instead, because that's hard work, or it might appear to be hard work, we sort of fill up that space with activity. We get addicted to activity. And seemingly, I mean, a lot of this is sort of what we would generally call wholesome, like just having um, hobbies. I'm into music, or I'm into building model airplanes, or I'm into gardening, or I'm into you know, cooking interesting meals and offering them to my friends. So it's not like these things are sort of these terrible patterns in our lives. But still we want to get interested in it. Even workaholic, uh, being a workaholic um, can be this like filling up the space. And so then in that sense, it's an intoxicant for you. In the way, in in that it hasn't totally been illuminated what's going on. And the pattern itself exists to sort of keep the mind, like there's a superficial story, like I got all this work I have to do. Instead of, like, what's going on here? You know, why do I think, I mean, other people don't work like this. Why do I think this? Or other people don't think model airplanes are important. Why does the mind, you know, why do I need 2,000 songs in my iTunes library? You know, what is that about? What's going on here? And it's not about judging. It's just about, out of compassion, I just want a better sense of the causes for suffering and the causes for happiness. And there, this place in my life, you know, where there is this intoxicant, there's some charge here. So it's probably a pretty good place to unpack a little bit and see what's here. And just explore a little bit, like if you notice, if you have some sense that this place may 
be sort of intoxicant, and you may want to use a different word that isn't as charged, then you might want to just like play a little bit, like, okay, so I'm not going to indulge that intoxicant. So like if it's music for you. Okay, for three days. Just to see, just to help illuminate the attachment and the whole pattern. You know, or if it's chocolate, you know, okay, for a couple of days I won't do chocolate. Or if it's news, okay, for a couple of days I won't do news. Kevin, some of you know, this is way back when, when you were single, <laughs> didn't have young kids, ran a little media fast here at the center. And they would start on Sunday, they'd meet, and have a circle, and just share together about like what their media habits were. And then each of them would make some kind of resolve about like how much they were going to restrict the news or other forms of media for that next seven or eight days. And then they check in again the following Sunday. So it would be great if anybody wants to take that over. Um, and, uh, but just as sort of this is how we get a sense. And, of course, with alcohol, with marijuana, with other kinds of recreational jo- drugs, how much caffeine. Because, like, for me in particular, it would be interesting to see, like, what role does green tea play in my life? You know, or what role does, um, I, I, I regularly during the week, like there will be days I won't have sugar, but, uh, you know, but most days, maybe five out of seven or so, you know, I'll have some kind of sugary treat of some kind. <laughs> and so it's interesting, but like, this is one of the nice things about retreats, is that then you have sort of a imposed break from some of these habit energies and then you get to see, like, what sort of role do they play in the mind? Because, like, another one of these motivations for consumption, for addictive patterns, intoxicants, is like this little carrot that we dangle in front of us. Well, if you're a good boy, you can go get chocolate at, you know, at this time of the day, or you can go home and watch this program, or you can do this, or you can do that. And then that's sort of an interesting pattern to deconstruct. Like, what is that? what are the implications of that attitude? Because I see it like, well, I saw it in, um, when I worked, used to work in the schools as a behavior specialist for uh, children that were having a hard time sort of, you know, following the rules of the school and the rules of the classroom. And then, uh, you know, one of the tricks that behavior specialists have are to create these sort of incentive packages for the kids. So it's like, well, if you get through the week, if you get through the day, if you get through the half an hour, then. And, I mean, generally that's what parents or teachers do anyway in terms of the natural consequences. Like if you act this way, if you behave this way, then these are the natural consequences that are going to come your way. If you behave these other ways, then these are the natural consequences. And then, you know, the behavioral specialists, they just sort of add to those natural consequences. Okay, well, you know, and there are these other things that could happen if you, if you sort of can hold it together get through the week or something like that. But there's always a shadow to sort of dangling that carrot in front of ourselves, promising, making a promise, which is participation in life becomes dependent on having a carrot. And if there's no carrot, I don't want to have anything to do with Like, why would I jump through the hoops of life if you're not going to give me anything? And we have this sort of bad attitude or wrong view about life, which is like, no way I'm going to live this life unless you 
you deliver the goods, right? And that's a real setup. And you see that with kids. You see it even with our pets. Like if you're, if you overuse these sort of reinforcements with your cat, with your dog, or other children or partners. <laughs> I mean, I always kid about that about sex and with your partners. Like, you know, if if the partner's really nice, then you know, then. I'll, I'll let them have sex or something like that. And it's just, uh, you know, what a corrupted way. Because then the, the sort of relationship that we have with ourselves or with the others in our life is this sort of business-like negotiation. Like, you know, okay, I'm going to give you this, but I need that back. It's like, I'm not going to let go of this until I make sure I get this, right? And so there's this, it's that very real tension that's in any sort of business negotiation. Like, am I getting a good deal here? Or what can I extract from this person? So, so I'll get some candy if I'm good all week, but, uh, but how good do I have to be? <laughs> I remember Calvin and Hobbes, I don't know if you remember that great cartoon that was out for a couple of years way back when. But it, was very, it was very insightful. And uh, one of the repeated themes was uh, Calvin and his stuffed tiger who spoke to him um, barreling down either on our wagon down a hill or in the wintertime on a sled down a hill. And they'd have these sort of existential conversations as they're sort of barreling down life or death going down the steep hill. And, uh, And one time, I think they're on a sled, but I can't remember exactly, and Calvin is telling his stuffed tiger, who is sort of ultra ego, you know, all the things he wants from Santa. And, uh, you know, and just like, and then the last thing is like, uh, so how good do I have to be to get this stuff? You know, it's like, because that's the deal, right? It's like, if I'm good, then Santa will give me. But how good? Like, because I'm not going to be better than I need to be. I'm just going to be as good as I need to be to get the prize. And so this is another way to look at the intoxicants in our life, like how we and, the, and people around us deliver the goods and that kind of uh, yeah, just helping us get through life as if that's the point of life to sort of create enough incentives to get through it which is sad to think of. I mean, even, um, you know, hospice patients, you know, and, and morphine and, and the other really good drugs. And I, I've been around enough people in hospice to have uh, completely changed my mind about the use of medication at that time because often the dying process is really painful and it seems very appropriate to use medication at that time, at least for my limited perspective. I mean, I've been around enough. I have some sort of perspective of it, but obviously I haven't gone through it myself. But it's also sort of a strange place because, you know, there's these little pumps or these ways you can kind of give yourself medication depending on the situation. And it's just interesting to, like, well, how much? We were just visiting Nicole, um, who uh, a lot of you know, Nicole Terrace, who's been one of our teachers over the years and who's now on hospice and uh, doing 
you know, as well as you might imagine, a person can do in that situation. The mind seems really clear, seems really wise, bright. Um, but <laughs> she was talking about in Kyoko and when and I were visiting yesterday with her and Tyler, her partner, and uh, she was saying, uh, "Yeah, well, how amazing it is to have Xanax and morphine, and just like what it does. <laughs> it's like, where has this been my whole life?" <laughs> <laughs> and and just the weird and she was talking about this little too a little too just like it's is it really is it really okay to enjoy this to take advantage of this it's like feeling guilty she was talking about like it feels funny to sort of use these drugs to help because her lungs are filling with water and it's you know it just triggers this most primal uh, experience of drowning. You know, this just happens. This is not an uncommon thing that happens to people who are really sick and, and also people who are dying. And um, people might know Nicole. She's she's been in uh, the Buddhist studies class on and off over the years, and um, been coming since 2000. Um, so a long time community member for a long time. But just that uh, sort of interesting relationship we have with the very real sense delights, and what should our relationship be? Like, in, not to morphine and Xanax and other things, but even simple things like green tea and chocolate and a glass of wine and, you know, really good entertainment done by incredibly intelligent people who know just how to sort of make us laugh or sort of illuminate different aspects of humanity that in ways that are very funny and enlightening, right? Some shows, some good shows, books, you know, it's really useful. So what should our relationship be to sense to lights, to things that can be intoxicating? Should we, you know, just to be um, provocative, you know, should we be a prude and like, avoid anything that might lead to getting intoxicated, like becoming addicted, getting attached. So I'm not going to do that because I might get attached. I'm not going to have a nice massage because I might want more of them. Gabe told me the other day that he's never had a massage, so for his birthday I'm going to get him a massage from someone. And... uh, but now, you know, on his limited income, he might like, God, this is really nice. <laughs> I should say, he's never had a massage he's had to pay for. That's probably the truth. <laughs> but it's like, you know, this is what the, the sort of story, I've never tried heroin, but it's like, don't try it. You know, it's so nice that you're just going to want more. And, uh, or, and, should this be our attitude, like, oh, I'm not going to travel because then I'm going to want to travel more, or I'm not going to, you know, take a vacation because then I'll want more vacation, or, you know, all these sort of things. So it really, this whole world of looking at the fifth precept and our relationship to intoxicants is really, it opens up the whole question about what's our relationship to sense experience and, and just generally sense pleasure. And clearly being afraid of it isn't the way. That's like, and uh, some of you know that that um, opening part of the Buddha's first Dharma talk, the Dhamma Chakra Chaka Sutta, 
the discourse on setting the wheel of Dharma in motion, a great discourse, and uh, I have it here somewhere. But anyway, uh, instead of finding it, I'll just sort of paraphrase it. But some of you know that before he talks about the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha tells his four companions in the holy life that he tracked down after his deep insight under the Bodhi tree, because remember, they had left him because they thought he had gone soft, because he saw the limitations of ascetic practices, like being the prude, thinking, I don't want to eat good food, I don't want to sleep in a comfortable place, you know, I don't want to indulge in any of the ordinary pleasures of being a human being, because I don't want my mind to become intoxicated with ordinary sense pleasure because I know it's not the way to real happiness. And then the Buddha rejects that. He says, yeah, it's still true that it's not the way to real happiness. It doesn't matter how many nice massages we get or how beautiful our home is. I mean, this is so interesting, this truth. Like I, when and I, we were up in the South Shore, I saw a cabin I liked. <laughs> and... Uh, and I'm really working on like, uh, like the decision to like, do I even consider sort of doing something about this place I saw? Do I even, like, before I even consider it, just to keep it really clear in my mind, this has nothing to do with happiness. So the choice to eat this chocolate bar, drink this glass of wine, watch this TV show. Honey, you can do that. There's nothing inherently wrong with doing that. And in fact, you know about the fifth precept, there are sometimes the Buddha lists the precepts and he doesn't include the fifth precept about refraining from intoxicants. And sometimes he does. And it's not, you know, it's said in the tradition, it isn't itself actually immoral to consume intoxicants. It just makes unethical behavior more likely because the mind is less clear. Right? So whenever we indulge in sense pleasure, just to sort of broaden the idea of what's an intoxicant to anything that the mind can get excited about because it's pleasurable, then the question is, well, what should our relationship be? And the Buddha said, well, Getting attached to asceticism, thinking that rejecting sense pleasures will get you any way, anywhere, is wrong. It's, it's not, it itself won't get you anywhere. But thinking that indulging in sense pleasures is going to get you somewhere, that's also wrong. So then, then the really interesting question, and you can unpack this also in your small groups, so then what should our relationship be to things like drugs and alcohol and interesting TV programs that aren't actually illuminating in any deep way, but maybe are fun or at least engaging. You know, Wynn and I, not so much recently because we've watched them all, but you know, the, over the years, the BBC has done a lot of sort of these mystery shows. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, we've watched a lot of them <laughs> over the years. And, you know, th- there's actually... Very, I mean, some of them have sort of good-hearted people. 
But short of that, there's really nothing I get from those watching those programs that I think makes any lasting impression of, of value in my heart, my mind. But it's probably not sending me to hell either, like creating, reinforcing qualities of my mind that are going to cause problems. The sort of relatively neutral things to absorb into. And so what should our relationship be to those kinds of things? In a way, it's dangerous because it keeps us from maybe something that would have some lasting positive value that we could be doing. So this is the interesting thing, and it really uh, reminds me of the later school uh, teachings in Buddhism and also in, in uh, the yogic traditions in northern India, Tantra, where they, they began to understand that because monasticism and asceticism, it's sort of, I don't know what the right word is, but maybe, maybe um, got a little overblown fetishized even in a way. And so there's this reform movement like, wait a minute, ordinary life, sex, food, this and that, it's not inherently bad. Is there a way to relate to sense pleasures and just generally sense experience as medicine to be used for awakening? Is there a way for that? Like, to drink a cup of tea, and that it's actually in the service of awakening, to have sex, to eat food, to engage with entertainments. How can it be supportive of real happiness? And if not, why would we do it? Like, do we we really have the idea that the best thing to do with our life is to fill the space with things that aren't harming anybody but don't really get us anywhere? Because I mean, I, I mean, even somebody who, you know, I think I'm, you know, I have a pretty uh, engaged practice, but still, there's a significant amount of time where I'm doing that. You know, I'm engaging sense experience and pretty much not honestly expecting anything in terms of supporting awakening in it. But it's not really that harmful. Most of the stuff I do. So, but why would I do that? Like, and how might, like, can I make it part of the awakening process? So that's something to talk about, like, when you think about your intoxicants or the things you don't want to give up, it's like, well, first of all, like, be really honest. How dependent is the mind on it? Because if the mind's dependent on it, then already there's some suffering. The mind thinking it needs something, there will be pain. There's no attachment without suffering. So if our mind is attached, dependent on something, then there's going to be suffering. So to just at least be honest about that. And I I really like that. I remember when uh, Sylvia Borstein said something about when uh, Sharon was in the hospital. I don't know, maybe it was way back when she had her car accident, which was a long time ago, but I'm not sure what it was. But I remember Sylvia saying something like at that time, she wrote Sharon uh, a letter or something or called her on the phone and said, you know, I don't care about the consequences of attachment, or maybe I do care, but in any case, I'm attached. I want you to get better, you know? And I'm, and I'm willing to feel, because it is the way it is, and I know that there's suffering 
in the me wanting dependent on you getting better. Me not wanting it to get worse. So this is the price we pay with our attachment. So we should be really honest about it. Like if my if I'm letting my mind get dependent on something, if I'm allowing my mind to get attached, then let me bring the suffering right up on the surface. Okay, so this is the very real cost to this attachment. It feels like this. So I'm not going to feel surprised by it when like whatever it is I'm attached to, when that goes away or when it's over, and then I feel, but I knew up front that that was coming. So then I'm not surprised by it. Like you can imagine if you're uh, somebody who's alcoholic, then you walk into the bar and you clearly remember what it's like to wake up the next day or to pick up the pieces in your life because of the mistakes you tend to make when you're intoxicated. And you're just clearly aware. So your drinking then includes the consequences. And you might think, oh my God, that would be terrible. But from a Buddhist point of view, it's more skillful to be engaging in unskillful behavior knowing the consequence than to be unaware of it. Because we're more likely to continue unskillful behaviors when we're skilled at being ignorant of what's getting set in motion, what the long-term consequences are. So does that give you enough to go on for your small groups? I mean, basically, anything around undertaking the training to refrain from indulging in intoxicants. And you know Thich Nhat Hanh, I sent this out earlier in the course, he goes into great depth. He expands it to like consuming anything that's unhealthy for you or society at large. And that's true with alcohol. Like You might be okay drinking a glass of wine every once in a while, but there are a lot of people who are not okay. And when we're, you know, when we use intoxicants, other people feel like, well, Mark drinks, so it's got to be okay. So we uh, model things for each other. You know, this is why when I mention, like sometimes I kid about having watched Game of Thrones, um, but I realize there's sort of a cost to saying things like that. Like part of it is being honest and revealing kind of my own habits, but part of it is like, well, Mark Fox watches Game of Thrones. Maybe it's good. You know, maybe I should watch that show. And so we sort of infect each other in our own addictions, or we can at least. And so we need to be aware that, like it or not, we're modeling for everybody else. And other people, what we do might not be healthy for them at all. Like for us, it may be relatively neutral thing that we do. But for other people, it might really throw them off balance and send them to hell or send them to a really unpleasant state, unwholesome state. So our last group, and then so anything related to the precepts would be appropriate to bring up, how they're looking in your life, benefit, bliss of blamelessness that you've experienced, freedom from remorse, clarity about something that appeared to be skillful but now with deeper reflection isn't skillful and you're really finding ways to let it go.
This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.